Support for Swindled comes from Simply Safe. Summer is coming. Do you have any fun travel plans? I bet you do. And you're just going to leave your home unprotected like that. What's wrong with you? Invest in Simply Safe Home Security today for award-winning security and peace of mind wherever your summer plans take you. Simply Safe's variety of indoor and outdoor cameras and sensors will protect every inch of your home by detecting break-ins, fires, floods, and more. I actually know a guy whose basement flooded while he was on vacation, and he didn't even know it until he returned almost a week later. Apparently that's where he stored his very valuable comic book collection, which was completely ruined. He was inconsolable, but I tried anyway, I said. I'm sorry, man, but this could have been avoided. If only you had a Simply Safe security system. Simply Safe has given me and many of my listeners real peace of mind. I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect Monitoring at simplysafe.com/swindled. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Support for Swindled comes from the Jordan Harbinger Show. Here's a podcast you should definitely check out since you're clearly a fan of high-quality, fascinating podcasts hosted by interesting people. The Jordan Harbinger Show. There's an episode for everyone, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of our personalities. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether that's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. You can't go wrong with adding the Jordan Harbinger show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-E-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode of Swindled contains descriptions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. Steve Supel has been in the news recently for his alleged involvement in a bank embezzlement case. Prosecutors say that Supel embezzled more than $550,000 during the seven-year period that he worked at Hills Bank and Trust. It was true. From July 26, 2000 to September 12, 2007, Stephen Supel, the vice president and controller of Hills Bank and Trust Company of Hills, Iowa, had stolen $559,040. During that time period, Stephen had been diverting funds from the bank where he was employed to a personal account at a different financial institution. Nothing too complicated. Stephen controlled all the money. No one would ever find out. But one day in October 2007, Stephen Supel was confronted by his banking superiors about some discrepancies. When he realized there was no way out, Stephen admitted that he was responsible for taking a little more than $200,000 over the past three years. Stephen told the banking officials that he had spent it all on cocaine. But when the FBI raided his house, there was no evidence that Stephen Supel was a coke fiend. They found no little baggies or razor blades, no missing appliances or grandiose business plans. So the investigators asked him again 
what happened to the money. Stephen Supel could not explain what happened to the money. He said that he had made up the story about drugs because he didn't know what else to say. Later analysis of Supel's bank statements would reveal that at least some of the cash was used to pay his mortgage and other bills. Perhaps no one ever told Mr. Supel that it is never a good idea to live beyond your means. Stephen Supel lived in a two-story gray brick inciting house in the Windsor Ridge subdivision of Iowa City, Iowa. The 42-year-old banker lived with his wife Cheryl, a former teacher, and their four young children, all of whom were adopted from Korea. The family was well known in the community. They were regulars at St. Mary's Catholic Church. Everybody in town knew their names which probably made things that much more difficult when Stephen Supel was indicted by a federal grand jury on embezzlement and money laundering charges. Everybody was going to know about what happened. Stephen would plead not guilty, but still, everybody would know that he had stolen the money and lost his job. He had to find work at a local concrete plant because the conditions of his bond restricted him from handling finances, the only skill he had ever learned. And of course, the townspeople were going to talk about Stephen's poor wife, Cheryl, and how she had to come out of retirement to keep the family afloat, and those poor kids adopted and abandoned by a criminal father. Stephen Supel's trial was scheduled for April 2008. He was facing a decades-long prison sentence and millions of dollars in fines. Stephen Supel's life, as he once knew it, was over, and it was embarrassing. But he put on a brave face in public. The Supel family even attended Easter Mass at St. Mary's on March 23, 2008, less than a month before Stephen's trial was set to begin. Cheryl's parents were also in attendance that morning. They said that they had not noticed anything unusual about their son-in-law's behavior. But by the next morning, it became very apparent that nothing was okay. Pick up on location of your emergency. Hello? Am I talking to Iowa City? No, this is... What is the location of your emergency? Iowa City, Iowa. What's the address, ma'am? 629 Barrington Road. Please go there immediately. What's going on there? At 6.31 a.m., March 24, 2008, an unidentified man called 911. It turned out to be Stephen Supel, and he was speeding down Interstate 80 in the family minivan. At 6.36 a.m., witnesses described seeing the van veer onto the median at a high rate of speed to deliberately crash into a concrete pillar. The van burst into flames. The doors never opened. It was burnt to a crisp. Stephen Supel was identified through dental records a few days later. Meanwhile, police were responding to the 911 call that requested their presence at 629 Barrington Road. It was the Supel family home. The door was unlocked. There was a handwritten letter in the kitchen. It was four pages long, written by recently deceased Stephen Supel, addressed to no one in particular. In the letter, Stephen discussed the unfortunate turn his life had taken as a result of the criminal charges and his upcoming prison stay. He expressed guilt for leaving his wife behind to raise four children on her own. Stephen decided that he couldn't live without them. So sometime after 11 p.m. on Easter Sunday, according to the letter, Stephen Supel gathered the kids and instructed them to sit in the family's minivan, which was parked in the garage with the door closed. 
10-year-old Ethan, 9-year-old Seth, 5-year-old Myra, and 3-year-old Eleanor climbed in and buckled up. Stephen wrote in the letter that he sat down in the driver's seat and cranked the ignition, hoping that the carbon monoxide would kill them all. But he grew impatient. Stephen turned off the engine and ushered the kids back into the house where he beat each one of them to death with a baseball bat. The three oldest were found in their bedrooms. Eleanor, the youngest, was downstairs with her toys. Cheryl Supel was also murdered that night, bludgeoned in the same fashion earlier that evening while she slept in the master bedroom. On March 24th at 6.31 a.m., a cell phone call was placed to 911, notifying dispatch operators to respond immediately to 629 Barrington Road, Iowa City. Fearing for the safety of the residents, officers entered the unlocked residence and conducted a sweep, finding five deceased. Among the dead were one adult female and four children. According to the officers and investigators at the scene, it appeared that the cause of death was blunt force trauma. After brutally murdering his family and writing his farewell letter, Stephen Supel left the house in the minivan. At 3.52 in the morning, he called home and recorded a message on the landline's answering machine, expressing regret for what he had done. Less than 10 minutes later, Stephen left another message informing the future listener that he had just tried to drown himself in the Iowa River, but wasn't successful because he, quote, kept floating. Stephen also left voicemails at the office of his former employer, Hills Bank, details of which were never released, and he left a message for his father and brother at their law firm, letting them know that his family was now in heaven. Hours later, Stephen Supel crashed the van, killing himself. Um, We believe uh, that probably she died first. Um, At that point, he probably had the children in, in the garage with him in that suicide attempt. When that failed, uh, then the, the children um, were subsequently um, killed. And then uh, the suicide attempt at Laura City Park uh, occurred after that, followed by the, uh, the accident on the interstate. There was no specific reason why he did this. Um, the messages and the note uh, basically contained apologies for his action um, and his feeling of despair over what had happened. And by that, you mean embezzlement charges? Uh, probably partially the embezzlement charges and, and the, the effect that that had on him and his family, yes. There was nothing in our investigation that indicated there was any kind of domestic situation prior to this that may have uh, led up to this. Uh, Most people we spoke to described it as an ideal family. Obviously, they had their problems here recently, but uh, uh, he was described as a, a kind, loving father, and he and his wife got along well. A funeral mass was held for the Supel family at St. Mary's on March 29, 2008. About 800 people were in attendance. Others stayed home because they were disgusted with the church for including Stephen in the ceremony. St. Mary's priest, Ken Kuntz, defended the church's decision, quote, I know that Steve loved his family, loved his wife, loved his children, but personally, I would be convinced that he did not do this out of malice. 
The scourge of mental illness leaves us bewildered, confused, and perhaps angry. Tom Baldridge, a Supel family friend, agreed with the church's non-licensed diagnosis of mental illness. He told KGAN-TV, quote, Stephen's mind snapped. He couldn't have gotten into the thought process that would have allowed him to do this if he were rational and sane. But Stephen Supel's actions were cold and calculated, like a seven-year-long embezzlement scheme. His murders and suicide were planned and even chronicled in letters and voice memos over a seven-hour period. According to psychologists, that's typically not the kind of trail left behind of someone who just went berserk. No, Stephen Supel knew exactly what he was doing. His final hours were just a continuance of the selfishness and greed that put him in that situation in the first place, combined with the belief that a better world awaits after death. Why not take the easy way out? And why not take your loved ones with you? That's what Stephen Supel did. And that's what a man in South Dakota named Scott Westerhouse did, too, for similar reasons. Except Stephen Supel ripped off a bank. Nary a tear was shed. Scott Westerhouse, on the other hand, stole education from underprivileged children for years, the ramifications of which would be felt long after he was gone. Federal grant money intended to fund education programs for Native American children in South Dakota goes missing and the main culprit takes an early exit on this episode of Swindled. They bribed government officials, clear violations of federal state law, pay to play kids of taxpayer dollars that were wasted, paid tens of millions of dollars, billion dollars, falsifying its books and records responsible for the collapse of the entire system. And in the troll of some kind of You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow, or find an awesome template. No judgment. GIRUP is a federal grant program that works with students starting in seventh grade and will follow those students through high school, doing whatever it takes to get them to graduate from high school and go on to some form of college. And this could in turn change the rest of their life. They could go to college and get a job and make money and help their families and you know, make a difference in the world. It is a very positive experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything. In 1998, the Girup Federal Grant Program was established in an amendment to the Higher Education Act of 1965. The program, which stands for Gaining Early Awareness and Readiness for Undergraduate Programs, is intended to prepare students for a post-secondary education by providing resources to them throughout middle school and high school. The goal of Girup is to increase the number of low-income students that attend state universities to raise expectations. I feel like I have a chance to go to college because before I think I was like, okay, I, I want to go to college, but I don't know if I'm going to get accepted or if I'm going to go into it. But now as I, I've been through this whole girl program. It has taught me a lot of ways to go into college. And the program has been relatively successful. Gear Up students reportedly graduate from high school at a higher rate than their peers, regardless of ethnicity or income. And they attend college at a higher rate as well, 
which is why funding for Gear Up has increased year after year. In 2014 alone, there was over $300 million up for grabs in the form of smaller grants and partnerships. The United States Department of Education divvied out those funds to almost every state in the Union, including South Dakota. There's students who have a lot of potential, but who just basically need the tools to really kind of help pull that potential forward and some exposure to different career opportunities. That's the voice of a man named Stacy Phelps. Mr. Phelps was the founder and CEO of a school focused on science and technology named the American Indian Institute of Innovation, or AIIII, as well as a member of the South Dakota Board of Education. As a Native American himself, Stacy Phelps understood the challenges and the value of receiving an education in the United States of America. The 42-year-old Phelps had dedicated over a decade to opening that door for others in his community. Some of the kids Stacy worked with had literally never been off the reservation. Stacy Phelps was also the administrator of South Dakota's Gear Up grant. As an employee of the Mid-Central Educational Cooperative, or MCEC, which is essentially a pooling of resources between different school districts across the state. The organization uses that pool of resources to provide special education services and training opportunities to smaller rural districts in South Dakota who cannot afford them on their own. Districts that many impoverished Native American children call home. And since the GERA program was primarily targeted at those types of students, the South Dakota Board of Education decided that MCEC was the most suitable organization to manage the grant. The Argus Leader newspaper referred to the Mid-Central Cooperative as a valued asset and a constant effort to meet a diverse range of student needs. According to the Dakota Free Press, since 2005, South Dakota has spent a total of $48 million in federal and state funds on Gear Up, all of which was handed over to Mid-Central for implementation. But in May 2015, a state audit revealed multiple issues with the MCEC's management of the contract, most notably the numerous and glaring conflicts of interest. Take the aforementioned Stacy Phelps, for example. He was the Gear Up Grant Administrator for MCEC and the CEO at AIIII. No issue with that until you realize that AIIII received Gear Up funds from MCEC, who was allocated those funds by the South Dakota Board of Education where Stacey Phelps also held a seat. And that's not even the half of it. The CFO of AIIII was a man named Scott Westerhouse. And like Stacey Phelps, Scott Westerhouse also worked at Mid-Central Educational Cooperative. Scott was the business manager and budget specialist at Mid-Central. And his wife, Nicole Westerhouse, she was the assistant business manager, in addition to receiving a second salary as the head business manager of a different nonprofit that received gear-up funds from MCEC as well. There were also other questionable people sucking on that gear-up teat. Uh, my name is Rick Melmer from the state of South Dakota. A man named Rick Melmer received $241,000 from MCEC in March 2015. Coincidentally, Rick Melmer had served as the state of South Dakota's Secretary of Education when Mid-Central was picked to administer the grant. And there was Keith Moore, who had served under Melmer as the state's director of Indian education. Keith Moore was listed as a Gear Up project director at MCEC and was being paid $4,000 every month. Board of Education member Kelly Duncan was also receiving payments from Mid-Central for her work on a different grant. I know, it looks bad, doesn't it? 
Any rational person that analyzes MCEC's tangled web would arrive at the conclusion that something fishy was going on. The grant administrator was administering funds to the company for which he was the chief executive officer. There was a family of business managers receiving multiple salaries and awarding contracts to each other. There were former public officials literally on the payroll. But who are we to say for sure? All of the organizations involved were education-related after all. Maybe the multiple roles of certain individuals could be explained by a lack of qualified applicants. I mean, this was happening in South Dakota, a state where there are four times as many cows as people. Maybe human resources were spread thin. What I'm trying to say is that maybe the gear-up money was being used as intended. Maybe everything was copacetic. Besides, if something illegal or unethical was happening with the South Dakota gear-up grant, don't you think someone would have noticed? Perhaps someone like the education evaluator that was handpicked by the state to evaluate the effectiveness of the gear-up grant? Her name was Brenda Kuhn, and in 2009, as a contractor, she received hundreds of thousands of dollars from Mid-Central, of which she earned every penny. Brenda Kuhn's evaluation of Mid-Central's gear-up program at the time was unsurprisingly and overwhelmingly positive. She wrote, The program is strong and continues to gain momentum in serving students, parents, and teachers, as well as establishing sustainable activities to create a systemic change within the schools it serves. Well, that's a relief. Despite the optics, it sounded like the gear-up program was working well, but apparently not well enough. Because on Wednesday, September 16, 2015, South Dakota's Secretary of Education, Dr. Melody Shop, phoned the director of Mid-Central Educational Cooperative, a man named Dan Garicki, to inform him that the South Dakota Department of Education had decided to terminate its partnership with MCEC as it related to the Gear Up program. Dr. Shop followed up with a letter that outlined all the reasons for not renewing the contract. She wrote that MCEC had failed to successfully implement the program and that it had not complied with the terms of the grant. Shop listed numerous deficiencies that MCEC had inadequately addressed, including but not limited to the lack of project oversight, lack of internal controls, lack of documentation for grant activities, and conflicts of interest. The state's decision to terminate the contract was also based on a recent evaluation of the Gear Up program that showed that MCEC had only achieved six of its 18 key outcomes during the 2014-15 budget year. And according to information later obtained by the Dakota Free Press, the ineffectiveness of the program had been apparent since day one. The newspaper accused the South Dakota Department of Education of letting a quote $48 million boondoggle roll on for over 10 years without demanding any concrete results. For instance, during its first six years, the state's gear up program reportedly sent only 20 kids to college at a total cost of 14 million federal dollars. That's $700,000 per student. And that doesn't even include the other $14 million that the state was required to match in order to receive the original grant. But finally, the state had caught on and pulled the plug. The Gear Up program in South Dakota was officially put on hold, at least until a different administrator was chosen. And going forward, the Native American children of South Dakota would finally benefit from what rightfully belonged to them. Except for, you know, all the land and stuff. As for Mid-Central's educational cooperative, they were spiraling out of control. The organization had just lost out on its upcoming $4.3 million contract with the Department of Education, 
$4.3 million that MCEC's employees and sister organizations were depending on. Now they weren't even sure if the cooperative would survive, or if they would even want to. What happened to all that money anyway? The $48 million that had funneled into Mid-Central since 2005. If those grant funds didn't go to the kids for college, then where did it go? And who was to blame? Why, I thought you'd never ask. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Your emergency? What, South Dakota? Okay, we're out in Platt. Okay, it's about a mile and a quarter south on the, uh, coming out of Platt from the four-way stop. There's a place on fire out there, and I just come by, and I didn't see no fire trucks or anything there. It'd be about, oh, 280th, uh, 380th on uh, 367th Avenue, I believe is what they call it. 380th on 360th Avenue? I believe that's what it is. I think it's a, a house a business type place there. But yeah, I don't see no fire trucks or nothing out there, so okay. it looks like it's been burning a little while. On September 17th, 2015, at 5.36 a.m., Emergency dispatchers in Charles Mix County received a report of a structure fire near Platte, South Dakota. By the time the fire department arrived at the scene, it was already too late. There was nothing left to save. The house had already collapsed onto itself, with the entire Westerhouse family still inside. Investigators found Scott Westerhouse's body in the basement, below the space that used to be the kitchen. There was a 12-gauge shotgun lying next to him and some kind of fire accelerant that could not be identified. Even though his remains were burned beyond recognition, it was clear that Scott had used the shotgun to take his own life. The remains of Scott's wife, Nicole Westerhouse, and their two daughters, 10-year-old Jacy and 9-year-old Kaylee, were found clinging to one another in the foundation space of the master bedroom. All three had been shot in the head. On the other side of the house were the two oldest kids, both boys, Michael the high school athlete and his brother Connor the 8th grade class clown. The order in which it happened isn't certain, but Scott Westerhouse murdered both of his sons that night too, in their individual bedrooms, one after the other, with the last one remaining certainly cowering under his covers, listening to the footsteps between shotgun blasts getting closer to his bedroom door. They were a picture-perfect family like the stick figures you might find on the back glass of a mid-sized SUV, living together in blissful harmony, until one night they were slaughtered and burned inside of their own home by the father. An old-fashioned, traditional nuclear family, 
reduced to nothing more than charred bones and mattress springs. Today, dozens of firemen, investigators, and Division of Criminal Investigation agents combed through what's left of the Westerhouse home. The house that once stood three miles south of Platt caught fire in the early morning hours. At 5.30, a driver passing by saw flames and called 911. That's about the time when Marcus King noticed fire trucks. We go out there and we go where the house is and it's all in one great big ball of flame and it's already fallen down. There was hope for a couple hours that as they were putting the fire out that someone would get a hold of them and they had gotten out and left, but it, it didn't happen. This is South Dakota's Attorney General at the time, Marty Jackley, discussing the early results of the investigation. In the early morning hours of Thursday, first responders answered a call for service in Platte, South Dakota. Uh, when they arrived, they met the unthinkable tragedy of the loss of an entire family of six. Once the fire was extinguished and the family's remains preserved, the crime scene was walled off, the process of gathering evidence began. Uh, after the evidence had been gathered, uh, there was also an autopsy process. Uh, the initial autopsy results indicate that Nicole uh, the mother and the four children uh, had died from gunshot wounds, homicide. At this point, the father, Scott uh, Westerhouse, uh, has been identified as having died by a gunshot wound to the head with apparent suicide as the manner of death. Although it was becoming more clear as to what happened that night at the Westerhouse residence, there were still questions about why it happened. The timing of the incident was peculiar. Less than 24 hours had passed since Mid-Central Educational Cooperative, where both Scott and Nicole Westerhouse had worked, found out that it had lost the gear-up contract. Shortly after the fire, law enforcement was advised of, the, of some financial concerns or issues. Specifically, we've been advised that the state legislative audit and the Department of Education uh, had been involved in an audit process of a contract uh, geared up about a $4.3 million contract. Earlier that day had advised uh, the company uh, that Mr. Uh, Westerhouse worked for that the contract had been terminated. The investigation continued for over a month and a half. Cell phone records obtained indicated that just hours before the murder-suicide, Scott Westerhouse had four separate conversations between 6.22 p.m. and 8.05 p.m all of which were determined to be related to the $4.3 million gear-up grant. A financial motive was seeming more and more likely. We are in a situation where we've lost a family of six, and we think it's due diligence and prudent for us to look at that financial information, and as with any matter, we'll go where the evidence leads us. The evidence included a missing safe and a surveillance video from that night that featured unusual traffic near the Westerhouse home. A white pickup hauling an empty flatbed trailer stopped at a convenience store before heading in the direction of the Westerhouse's house. Investigators wondered if Scott had made arrangements to have the safe removed before he pulled the trigger. That theory was disproved when the safe was later determined to have disintegrated in the blaze. Apparently, the model of safe that the Westerhouse's owned could only withstand a fire for up to 30 minutes. Any clues it may have held had gone up in flames. Detectives were also able to track down the man driving the white truck with the flatbed. 
He claimed he was simply transporting live pheasants to a hunting preserve down the street on the night in question, but that's what they all say. The only real clue that remained was a 43-second voicemail left on Nicole Westerhouse's cell phone at 2.57 a.m. the night that she was murdered. The call had come from the landline in the Westerhouse home. Investigators were never able to listen to the message because Nicole's phone had been destroyed in the fire, and the request to obtain the data from her cell phone provider had come far too late. It had already been deleted. That voicemail would forever remain a mystery. The very next call or contact, as you can see, is into the early morning hours of Thursday morning at 2.57 a.m. A call is made from the Westerhouse landline to Nicole's cell phone. What I can tell you about that call is that it lasted 43 seconds. It was forwarded to voicemail that the phone was destroyed and believed to be destroyed in the catastrophic fire. So I can't tell you what was left on that message, if anything. However, authorities later discovered that a similar call was made from the landline to Scott Westerhouse's cell phone around the same time. The detectives confirmed that the calls were most likely automated smoke detection warnings from the house's alarm company. Another dead end with nowhere else to turn. Case closed. The law enforcement investigation has indicated and come to the conclusion that Scott Westerhouse was responsible for uh, the death of his wife, Nicole, and their four children uh, before setting fire uh, to their home and ultimately uh, committing suicide. Uh, And there's no evidence that would indicate that anyone else was responsible for those actions. The investigation at this point has included uh, 26 witness interviews, the collection of physical evidence and the forensic testing of that evidence, the review of significant uh, phone records and other type text information, uh, and certainly the medical and autopsy information that was available. Today I'm, I'm focusing on the death investigation. I will tell you that there is a joint state and federal financial investigation into the financials of Gear Up and other programs that has been given the highest priority by both the Attorney General and the United States Attorney. The joint investigation into the financials of MCEC and the Gear Up grant hinged on the results of a forensic audit. Investigators hoped that the remaining pieces of the puzzle would be found in the numbers. There was no other way to explain why Scott Westerhouse, a seemingly normal, caring, and loving father, would annihilate his entire family. Unfortunately, that audit would take a few months to complete. In the meantime, the effects of the Westerhouse deaths, as well as the original audit and lost grant that presumably spurred those deaths, were already taking shape. On October 2, 2015, Stacy Phelps resigned from his position as Mid-Central's Gear Up Administrator and vacated his seat at the South Dakota Board of Education. Later, Mid-Central's director, Dan Garicki, announced his retirement and Department of Education Secretary Melody Schopp was asked to step down. But Dr. Schopp declined. Through a spokeswoman, Schopp announced that she would be staying on the job and would continue to oversee the Gear Up program. Quote, The last thing you do in good leadership is back away from problems instead of just stepping up and addressing them. And that's what I intend to do, see this through. 
Bella DeShop would remain in place as head of the South Dakota Department of Education, and she had the unwavering support of the state's governor, Dennis Dugard. And I have every confidence in Melody Shop, and I think the state is very lucky to have someone like her leading our Department of Education. But maybe she shouldn't have, because according to information obtained by Kelloland News, Dr. Melody Shop was made aware of issues with the Gear Up grant years earlier. Two different South Dakota directors of Indian education had expressed concern over the contract with MCEC, and even warned the Department of Education about possible criminal activity. One of those directors, Roger Campbell, had sent multiple emails to the department about potential conflicts of interest, as well as Brenda Kuhn's inaccurate evaluation reports. Five months passed before Secretary Shop addressed Roger's concerns in an email. It read, quote, Roger, we need to stop doing this back and forth. I don't know where this is going, and it seems like all this is going to do is further the issues. This was April. It is useless at this point to address the issues again. Can we simply move forward? Melody. When Dr. Shop was later questioned about Roger Campbell's warnings, she was unable to remember specific details about their correspondence. I don't have a specific email exchange. There was conversations that went on between the two of us. And there's conversations that we on, and I would have to go back and try to find something very specifically that you're speaking of because I can't identify or remember anything that would have been very specific to the level of detail that you're asking about. This is Luann Wardell, the other director of Indian education, describing Melody Shop's response to her warnings about the administration of the Gear Up grant. And she said, Luann, she said, um, I'll try to protect you. She said, but, um, you know, you just need to not worry so much about the grants. You need to just focus on larger policy issues. To her credit, Melody Shop was the person who eventually put a stop to the contract after giving Mid-Central three years to clean up the program to no avail. Dr. Shop retired two years later. Good evening, Governor Dennis Dugard has selected Don Kierkegaard to replace outgoing Secretary of Education Melody Shop. While that uh, selection still has to be confirmed by the South Dakota Senate and with the Republican majority, that confirmation is almost a given. However, Kierkegaard has a long-standing ties to people directly involved in the gear-up scandal. Really? There was no one else available? Again, more cows than people. Four days after the Westerhouse incident, MCEC released a statement written by Dan Gorecki before he retired. It read, Mid-Central Educational Cooperative is shocked and incredibly saddened to learn the tragic news about the Scott and Nicole Westerhouse family. Scott and Nicole were employed at Mid-Central Cooperative for over a decade. Our thoughts and prayers are with the extended families of Scott and Nicole as they mourn the loss of children and grandchildren. We join the community of Platt as we grieve the loss of lives that will impact this community for the foreseeable future. But at the time of that statement, Dan Garicki nor anyone else knew just how much of an impact the Westerhouses had already made on their community's foreseeable future. No one knew that they had stolen at least $2 million from the Gear Up grant for personal use, injecting their own children's college funds with money meant for Native American kids who had no other option kids whose lives could be improved with just a little bit of help, a nudge in the right direction, as Gear Up was designed to do. But instead, Scott and Nicole Westerhouse took it from them and built an empire of lies. And they were not alone. 
The forensic audit would reveal that the gear-up program in South Dakota was almost more of a criminal enterprise than an educational one, and there were a lot of familiar names involved, and eventually they would all be revealed. But would anyone be held accountable? What do you think? Support for Swindled comes from Simply Safe. When you travel, do concerns back home nag you? You know, did you lock up? Did you leave a window open? Did you forget a child? Things like that. I know I do. That's why I recommend investing in Simply Safe Home Security today for award winning security and peace of mind wherever your summer plans take you. Here's a true story that happened to me last week. I was out of town in an unfamiliar city in an unfamiliar room. It was midnight and I was about to fall asleep when I get an alert on my phone. Simply Safe glass break sensor triggered. Not good. So I log in to view my cameras and I see a massive hailstorm pounding my house in real time. Long story short, I sent a friend over to take care of it. His night was ruined. I slept like a baby. Thank you, Simply Safe. Simply Safe has given me and many of my listeners real peace of mind. I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/swindled. There's no safe like Simply Safe. We're talking about seven different uh, corporations or organizations that were formed during that time. Money going back and forth to these different corporations and ultimately a lot of it going to the Westerhouse family. Before it was just ashes and ghosts, the Westerhouse property three miles south of Platte, South Dakota was impressive. A 7,600 square foot house set on 40 acres of land with additional recreational buildings and equipment. There was even half a football field complete with goalposts and a separate two-story gym, batting cages, and a weight room, all of which emerged undamaged from the fire. Going to have the gym here, you know, so the kids from the Platte School and Get a School or anybody, they can come and use the gym to to work out. The property was valued at $1.3 million, and there were new additions all the time, like the 10,000-square-foot storage facility or the indoor swimming pool which was still under construction at the time of the Westerhouse's untimely demise. So clearly, they had plans for the future. That is, until the Gear Up grant was pulled out from under them and their entire house of cards was burned to the ground. Six months after the murder-suicide, Attorney General Marty Jackley announced that the financial investigation had revealed that Scott and Nicole Westerhouse had been embezzling grant money through Mid-Central for at least five years before their deaths. The Division of Criminal Investigation wrote in an affidavit that initially the family tried to hide their crimes by transferring money back and forth between seven different organizations, creating false invoices and using secret credit cards. That's on top of collecting salaries for each of their conflicting roles. But as time went on, they, especially Scott, became a little complacent. Living like that pool of money would never dry up. Financial documents at the time of his death revealed that Scott Westerhouse had an enormous amount of debt. He owed more than $120,000 on vehicles alone. He owed tens of thousands more in credit cards and personal loans, and another forty-five dollars to a contractor who remodeled parts of his home. 
more than 20 creditors came forward with claims against Scott Westerhouse's estate. Another 24 filed their claims too late to qualify. And the Westerhouses weren't just stealing from the gear-up funds. There were other grants as well. In total, more than $7.8 million flowed through the nonprofits the family had created, most of which was tracked down, but at least $1.4 million had simply disappeared. But really, judging by the complex the Westerhouses had built for themselves, it was hiding in plain sight. Along with the ATVs, tractors, boats, saunas, and spas that could also be found on the property, all of which was auctioned off after their deaths to pay back debts they'd left behind. Sold the property right here, 370000 Plant Ministerial Association. The New Hope Christian Camp and Retreat Center sign is up, and a lot of work has gone into transforming this into this. The site where the Westerhouse home once stood has been filled in, and what was supposed to become an indoor swimming pool is now being transformed into a chapel. Scott Westerhouse had been asked about financial irregularities in Mid-Central's books when he was still alive during the organization's board meetings. Scott used to blame voided checks and journal entries on why things weren't adding up. It was nothing to be alarmed about, he would assure them. Just a few accounting errors that could be easily fixed and Scott had people that were willing to fix it. People like his wife, Nicole. She certainly had no issues submitting backdated contracts to auditors, anything to keep that money train chugging along. Nicole was more than happy to help, but according to A.G. Jackley, she wasn't nearly as involved in the embezzlement scheme as her husband. Scott was the mastermind. Jackley said Nicole's crimes were minor compared to the fate she sustained. Quote, We found her laying dead next to her two children, she suffered far beyond what she might have done in uploading the contract. And then there were those who were involved whose fates had not yet been decided. People like Stacy Phelps, the Gear Up Administrator and CEO of AIIII, an organization that was discovered to have received over a million dollars from Mid-Central. Stacy Phelps had also helped backdate and sign employment contracts for Rick Melmer and Keith Moore so that AIIII could avoid being audited by the state. Phelps had thousands of reasons to discourage anyone from looking into his books. He had spent more than $200,000 of AIIII's funds on personal expenses, gorging at retail stores, casinos, and restaurants. This is a former Gear Up employee speaking to Kelloland News. And I would notice the extravagant spending. The extra, you know, the Brazilian steakhouse, 100 plus dollar, you know, bills off of one or two people. The hands-off chairman of the board of AIIII was a former astronaut named John Harrington, also known as the first Native American to ever fly in space. After the Westerhouse tragedy, Harrington said he paid Stacy Phelps and AIIII a visit where he was surprised to find 22 vehicles, all purchased without board approval. John Harrington had been under the impression that AIIII was a bare-bones operation, but the fleet of vehicles suggested otherwise. He also found a stack of contracts AIIII had entered into without his knowledge. It seemed Stacy Phelps had simply gone rogue, but the details of Phelps' unapproved personal expenditures coming to light proved to be the final straw. John Harrington fired the AIIII CEO. 
that these particular charges by Mr. Phelps were not for uh, and did not benefit Native American children in furtherance of their education. You know, certainly when you look at some of these specifics and the personal use, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that it wasn't being watched. There was no better example of Gear Up not being watched than the $4 million Microsoft DreamSpark software it had supposedly purchased but never used. The software, which was required to receive the grant, was intended for use by students enrolled at a summer program at the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology, but there is no evidence that it was ever implemented. What we didn't, as I'm understanding the finding, uh, what we did not record is to which student which software went to, because it varied somewhat on which schools they were in. Uh, all the schools had access to all of it, but we did not record which exact piece of software went to which student. That's Dan Garicki again, the director of Mid-Central Educational Cooperative. His name was also on the backdated contracts related to the employment of Melmer and Moore. Gorecki told investigators that Scott and Nicole Westerhouse told him that the original contracts had been lost, so they just recreated them. Gorecki claimed he wasn't aware that the date had been changed, but he would have to save that explanation for a judge. Both Dan Gorecki and Stacy Phelps were charged with multiple counts of falsifying evidence, as well as conspiracy charges for offering falsified evidence. The forensic audit also found more than $55,000 in payments to a woman named Stephanie Hubers. She was the former interim business manager for Mid-Central, and apparently she knew too much. Investigators believed that the payments to Hubers were supposed to be some kind of hush money, and she had sent false invoices to Mid-Central for work that was never performed to cover their tracks. Stephanie Hubers was charged with six felony counts of grand theft, grand theft by deception, and receiving stolen property. Hubers, Phelps, and Garicki voluntarily turned themselves in on March 16, 2016, when the warrants were issued. They were the only three people charged in the gear-up scandal. Through their lawyers, Hubers, Phelps, and Garicki asked for a trial by judge rather than by jury. The defendants were afraid that they could not receive a fair trial. They were afraid that the locals would seek vengeance against them for the deaths of the Westerhouse children. Stephanie Huber's lawyer, Clint Sargent, accused the Attorney General's office of making his client and the other defendants scapegoats for a crime they didn't commit. Quote, She has become the face, along with these two gentlemen, of the Attorney General's riding the deaths of those children and stealing from those Native American children. There is no one for the community to have retribution from because Scott Westerhouse is dead. In court documents, Sargent wrote, the state and the public at large have an appetite for vengeance and punishment that cannot be satisfied because the meal they crave is gone. The trials were rescheduled and relocated to Sioux Falls. All three would plead not guilty. However, days before his trial was set to begin, Dan Garicki accepted a plea deal admitting that he had backdated the contracts, but was adamant that he had no idea how the Westerhouses planned to use them. For his role in the scandal, 61-year-old Dan Garicki was ordered to pay a $1,000 fine and $104 in court cost. Dan had no idea what Scott Westerhouse was up to, and nobody alleges he did. Dan was not involved in trying to interfere with an audit of a triple I. And, and the state has never alleged that. And so at this point, the state felt uh, it was a fair resolution. Uh, we took into account 
uh, the accepting responsibility for the backdating of the contract. Uh, we took into account the willingness to cooperate. Stephanie Huber's trial began in June 2018. Almost three years had passed since the Westerhouse tragedy. Over the course of four days, the prosecution set out to prove that Huber's was not only aware of Scott Westerhouse's money funneling scheme, but also instrumental in helping him pull it off. Huber's maintained a secret set of books to hide the actual numbers from the organization's board and auditors. She helped conceal the fraud. But Stephanie Huber's defense claimed she was just doing what she was told. Huber's herself admitted that she was, quote, probably your ideal ignorant employee, and she denied ever accepting money to keep quiet about what was going on, even though she knew what was happening. Huber's told investigators, quote, I guess I was the lesser person. I kept my mouth shut and kept going. Huber's attorney, Clint Sargent, also argued that his client was not guilty of receiving stolen property because she didn't know the money she had received was stolen. And the law requires under these theft charges or receiving stolen property that a person has to know. They have to believe it in their heart that they're stealing or that they're receiving stolen property. We don't apply criminal liability for what people should have known. That's what the civil law is about. Stephanie didn't know. In his closing argument, Sargent reminded the jury of who was really responsible. Quote, We all know that Scott Westerhouse was the worst kind of monster. He was a control freak who named himself as a savior, but he was a destroyer. He was a destroyer of lives. He didn't have accomplices. He only had victims, especially those closest to him. We begin tonight breaking news and a verdict in the first gear up trial here in Sioux Falls. A Minnehaha County jury has found Stephanie Hubers not guilty on all charges. After six hours of deliberation on her 46th birthday, the jury acquitted Stephanie Hubers of all charges. This is her attorney, Clint Sargent. Stephanie Hubers um, had asked me to tell everyone that um, her biggest disappointment in this whole thing has been the way that the Gear Up program has now become synonymous with a scandal. And it was a wonderful program. It helped so many people. And that's the thing that she hates most about all of this is that now Gear Up is connected to a scandal. Stacy Phelps' trial began in October 2018. Like Stephanie Huber's defense, Phelps's attorney Dana Hanna kept Scott Westerhouse front and center, using words like criminal, liar, and con man to describe his client's former partner, while Hannah portrayed his client, Stacy Phelps, as an innocent man who got duped. It was true that Phelps had backdated the contracts. He admitted to doing so on the stand, but Hannah said that Phelps, like Dan Garicki, thought they were merely replacement copies. It hadn't even occurred to Stacy Phelps what other use the contracts could have served because he lacked the financial knowledge. Dana Hanna described his client, Stacy Phelps, the CEO of AIIII and presidential medal winner, a poor leader with the added reminder that, quote, being a bad executive is not a crime. The state attorneys told a very different story about how Stacy Phelps was very aware of his involvement and helped cover it up. Assistant Attorney General Paul Swedland pointed at Phelps's extravagant spending and how he provided five inconsistent answers to investigators when asked about the backdated contracts. Quote, Stacy Phelps wants you to believe he was duped. He knew the contracts were different. There were so many irregularities. No CEO would ignore them unless he was in on it. 
This is a white-collar crime version of my dog ate my homework. No matter how Phelps wants to slice it, the admitted contracts are fraudulent. The prosecution also outlined text, emails, and phone calls between Stacy Phelps and Scott Westerhouse where they had discussed the contracts in question. Stacy Phelps claimed he didn't remember. After hours of deliberation, a jury has found Stacy Phelps not guilty. Late last night, a Minnehaha County jury acquitted Phelps of four counts of being accused of backdating contracts to try to avoid a potential audit. Can you tell us how you feel at this moment? Stacy would rather have me talk to him. What do you think it was that swayed the jury to acquit him? The fact that he's innocent. The Indian people of this state have always known that Stacy Phelps is innocent of these charges. Another disappointing loss for the state of South Dakota. Millions of dollars missing or misspent, six dead bodies and no one held accountable. The Attorney General's office just could not overcome that one giant missing piece. See, the challenge in this case has always been the, Scott, the lack of Scott Westerhouse. The, the fact is that the state is unable to present some of the co-conspirators in its cases. Um, that makes it challenging. I think another thing that was important that came out of the trial is the important for trans- importance of transparency. I mean, if you look at the courtroom isn't the place to necessarily solve some of these financial type corruption cases. And when you talk about transparency, the media has a role. I mean, you heard it, some of the trial testimony that people were noticing. And I think if we look at these cases, I think the lesson learned is our state needs to look at its transparency. What can we do as a state to be more transparent uh, about what the financial dealings are? In the wake of the gear-up scandal, South Dakota lawmakers aimed to close loopholes in state law that allowed it to go unnoticed for so long. New laws that went into effect on July 1st, 2016 require additional disclosures about conflicts of interest. It also enacted whistleblower protections for public employees and set up the State Board of Internal Control. But some in the state, including the two most recent gubernatorial candidates, say the new laws do not go far enough and that even more transparency should be required. In April 2016, member districts of the Mid-Central Educational Cooperative voted to dissolve the organization and agreed to pay back nearly $300,000 to the South Dakota Department of Education, but not before a frenzy of lawsuits arose. MCEC filed suit against AIIII for improperly using their organization to bankroll its payroll, while both MCEC and AIIII sued the Westerhouse estate to recover over $2 million. And I didn't want my daughter to become a statistic of either teen pregnancy, alcoholism, high rates of suicide. You know, I didn't want that for her. I wanted to her. I wanted for her to have a better life. And I always pushed education, always pushed her, pushed her, pushed her. In May 2016, two Native American high school students named Alyssa Black Bear and Kelsey Walking Eagle Espinoza filed a class action lawsuit against Mid-Central, AIIII, and the Westerhouse Estate for misspending the funds intended for their people. The students claimed that they were entitled to financial compensation because they didn't benefit from the grant that was supposed to give them access to higher education. A class action lawsuit filed by Native American students concerning Gear Up is going all the way to the South Dakota Supreme Court. In 2016, Kelloland Investigates told you Alyssa Black Bear and Kelsey Walking Eagle filed the lawsuit saying they want justice and restitution for 6,600 Native American students. 
Our investigation found that despite millions of dollars being spent on the Gear Up program in South Dakota, there was no data to show any Native American kids went to college because of participating in it. The South Dakota Supreme Court handed down its ruling in March 2019. The chief justices had come to the unanimous opinion that the students' claims lacked legal standing and that they had failed to show a causal connection between the alleged wrongdoing and their alleged injury. The defendants also argued that it was never proven that gear-up funds were missing, only that mid-central funds were misappropriated, so there was no proof that the missing money would have benefited the plaintiffs. The student's case was dismissed on summary judgment. Again, the Native American children were left with nothing. All the Native American children that didn't benefit anything from it. And we're not thinking just hundreds of dollars, we're thinking millions of dollars that probably could have put a lot of our Native children into colleges across the state. Swindled is written, researched, produced, and hosted by me, a concerned citizen, with original music by Trevor Howard, a.k.a. Deformer. For more information about Swindled, you can visit swindledpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Swindled Podcast. Or you can send us a postcard at P.O. Box 6044, Austin, Texas 78762. But please, no packages. We do not trust you. But you can trust me, which is why you should go listen to a podcast called Nighttime, hosted by my Canadian friend Jordan. He covers some of Canada's most fascinating stories in a really interesting way, including a multi-parter about the Nova Scotia rampage that happened just weeks ago. Go check it out. It's called Nighttime, and you can find it wherever podcasts exist. As for Swindled, we are a completely independent production, which means no network, no investors, no bosses, no shadowy money men, no grants. And we plan to keep it that way. But we need your support. Become a valued listener at patreon.com swindled. For as little as five bucks a month, you will receive early access to new episodes and exclusive access to bonus episodes, which you can't find anywhere else. And the best part, everything is commercial free and you can listen right inside of your favorite podcast app, just like you're doing right now. Patreon.com swindled. Or if you want to support the show and need something new to wear to your high school prom, consider buying something you don't need at swindledpodcast.com shop. There are stickers, patches, hats, hoodies, posters. Crop tops are back in stock. Swindledpodcast.com shop. And remember to use coupon code CAPITALISM to receive 10% off your order. If you don't want anything in return for your support, you can always simply donate using the form on the homepage. That's it. Thanks for listening. My name is Cammie from Alaska. My name is Ross Medler from Dayton, Ohio. My name is Veronica from Norway. And uh, I am a Thanks to Simply Safe for sponsoring the show. Simply Safe has given me and many of my listeners real peace of mind. I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect Monitoring at simplysafe.com/swindled. There's no safe like Simply Safe.